Scripture reading today will be from Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Philippians 1, 3 through 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It is so good to be here today, is it not? Last week was a bit emotional for me. This week is just exciting for me. You know, it's, it's really fun with this new format, honestly. There are some things that I'm really enjoying about how we're having to do things. It is fun watching the rotation of who has to sit up front and who doesn't. In fact, I noticed after last week, some of you showed up a little bit later so that you wouldn't have to sit up front, didn't you? D don't deny it. I know some of you did because I can see the rotation happening. Jordan, have you ever sat this close to me? I don't think so. It's a short walk down, though, just so you know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm, I've been wanting to say that to somebody who, who's up front that hasn't been up front yet, and, and Jordan's just a great one you can pick on like that. The other thing that I love is that I preach before communion. And so at the conclusion of the sermon, you're like, hey, he got done early. And then you got like another 20 minutes before we leave. And then you realize, oh, wait, no, he didn't. So I, I love the fact that, that this time frame also messes with your head to make it seem like I'm not doing as long as I normally do. But it doesn't really matter about the format, because it's just good to be together. And this morning we're going to continue our study of the book of Philippians with this theme of joy, this theme called finding joy in the journey. But I want to begin by sharing with you some uh, Mistakes that have been made in church bulletins over the years. Now, none of these were made in our bulletin, just so you know. This is a collection of mistakes that have been made in various bulletins from various churches over the years. Sometimes when you get a, a church bulletin, there will be a typo in it that is just hilarious. For instance, there was an announcement in one bulletin that said, Thursday night potluck supper, prayer and medication to follow. Another bulletin, another bulletin said, This evening at 7 p.m. there will be a hymn singing in the park across from the church. Bring a blanket and, some, and come prepared to sin. I like this one. Life groups meet on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. for food, fun, and fellow whipping. I, I want to check out that life group sometime. I want to know what fellow whipping is. But sometimes mistakes happen in, bull in bulletins because there are some unfortunate details included. For example, one bulletin announced that the low self-esteem support group will meet Thursday at 7 p.m. and they were instructed to please use the back door. 
Similarly, a bulletin announcement had a Weight Watchers meeting at 7 p.m., which said, please use the large double door at the side entrance. <laughs> Not sure that was a really great meeting. Then there was an announcement about a rummage sale. Ladies, don't forget the rummage sale. It is a great chance to get rid of those things not worth keeping around the house. Don't forget your husbands. <laughs> but sometimes bulletin mistakes, are they're not intended to be funny, but they are. For instance, one bulletin announced that a particular sister remains in the hospital and needs blood donors for more transfusions. She is also having trouble sleeping, and she requests tapes of Brother So-and-So's sermons. So if you're having trouble sleeping, I can help you out. There was another, another announcement. Remember in prayer the many who are sick of our community and, and church. For those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. There's a bigger problem there. And, and finally, this one, uh, which you guys will like, not me so much. During the absence of our preacher, we enjoyed the rare privilege of hearing a good sermon when Brother So-and-So supplied our pulpit. Now, I bring all these up for a bit of humor today, but also because they are a reminder to us that the church is a good place to go to find mistakes. And for that reason, a lot of people don't think the church is a place you can find joy. Because when they go to the church, they find so many things that are wrong. This morning, as we continue this Finding Joy in the Journey series, last week we established that joy is a command that we are expected to pursue and to possess joy. And now, as we journey through the rest of Philippians, we're going to look at specific contexts and specific situations in which we need to be in pursuit of joy. And we're going to talk about how we can find joy under such circumstances, and we're going to begin today by talking about finding joy in the church. But before we dive into our text this morning in Philippians chapter 1, we need to talk about the church a little bit. We need to acknowledge three truths about the church that, that will affect how we approach this subject. And the first truth is this. The church is not optional. The church is not optional. I talked about this three weeks ago. God made discipleship communal. God designed it so that his people would exist within a community of faith. You can go to the Old Testament, and the community of faith consisted of clans and tribes that were associated with Abraham. And then when you get to the New Testament, the community of faith is made up of, of individual congregations associated with his church. So whether you're looking at the Old Covenant or you're looking at the New Covenant, what you see is that God intends for faith to be lived out in the context of a community of believers. And that means that following God, that, that being a disciple... That faithful obedience to His will not only necessitates believing, but it also necessitates belonging. And what I mean is this. You can't be a child of God without believing that Jesus Christ is His risen Son, but you also can't be a child of God without belonging to a community of believers. See, when you were baptized into Christ, a few things happened. We talk about the fact that your sins were forgiven. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, when Peter presented the first gospel sermon, he, 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 in the instructions he gave to his audience, he declared that when you are baptized, you receive the forgiveness of your sins. He, he also declared that you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is a reference to the fact that the Spirit is a seal or deposit or guarantee in your life. 
Paul, I mean, excuse me, Peter said that you receive both those things when you're baptized. But if you look at Acts chapter 2 and you look at verse 41, verse 38 declares forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. But verse 41 says, And there were that day 3,000 souls that were added to their number. See, the other thing we need to realize is that when we were baptized into Christ, we're added to something. What are we added to? Well, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you'll see in verse 13 that Paul says that as Christians, we were all baptized into one body. That's what they were added to in Acts chapter 2, and that's what you and I were added to. The one body. In verse 27 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we find out what, the, what body Paul is talking about. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, that the one body is the body of Christ and that we are individually members of it. So when you are baptized into Christ, when you become a Christian, you not only receive the forgiveness of your sins and you not only receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, but you also are added to a body. You can't be right with God and not believe in Jesus Christ. And you can't be right with God and not be a part of his body. They go hand in hand. And so the first thing we need to realize is that the church is not optional. The second thing we need to realize is that the church is not perfect. Hopefully, you already knew this. Have you ever heard someone say or said it yourself, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church? Or have you ever heard someone say, I don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites? You know what's being communicated in both those statements? What's being communicated, what's being acknowledged is the fact that the church is imperfect. And let's think about that for a moment. The Bible declares that Jesus lived perfectly. But the Bible never declared that the church would lack problems. You're never going to find a perfect church. Do you know why? Because you're in it. And because I'm in it. Because the church is not a place, as we've talked about. The church is people. And guess what? People are flawed. People are mortal. People make mistakes. And so, unfortunately, in the church, mistakes are going to happen. Wrongs are going to be committed. And it's not always going to be perfect. The church has always had problems. Just read Paul's letters to churches. Read the chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation and the letters to the churches that Jesus transcribed via John. The church has always had problems. And right here in this, this letter, this epistle that Paul is writing to the Philippians, which I believe is one of the most optimistic texts in all of Scripture, Paul still has to take time out of this letter to address a major problem in that church. You won't see it till chapter 4, but in verses 2 and 3 of Philippians chapter 4, he writes to two women, Euodia and Syntyche. Hey, how about we name our daughter that? Euodia and Syntyche. These are two women in the church in Philippi that have a disagreement of some sort, and it's dividing the congregation. And Paul is going to entreat them. He's going to plead with them to get along. And you know what else he's going to do? He's going to tell that congregation, hey, I need you to help these women resolve this dispute. I need you to help create the unity that's lacking. And so there's a problem in the church in Philippi, and Paul's going to spend this letter on making multiple appeals for unity. 
You can see it in chapter 1 and verse 27, where he says, I want you to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 2 and verse 2, he's going to tell them that it will complete his joy if they will be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind with each other. And then in verse 14 of chapter 2, he instructs them to do all things without complaining and disputing, because in so doing, they can find unity. The point is that there have always been problems in the church. The church is not perfect, but that is no excuse for refusing to belong to and or disrespecting the institution that Jesus loved and that Jesus gave his life for. See, we need to remember Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. It tells us that Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So often we think about how, how Christ loved people. We need to understand the implication of that as stated here in Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. If Christ loved the church that much, and if I'm called to be like Christ, then doesn't that imply that I should love the church that much too? And you can't do that if every time you discover a problem in the church, you choose to quit it or you choose to shop for another one. And that takes us to our third point about the church this morning. The church is not consumer-based. You know one thing that's interesting to me about this letter to the church in Philippi? As I mentioned last week, Paul writes a lot about joy in this letter, but not once does he ever say the church in Philippi has joy. Oh, he'll, he'll say that his exoneration would bring them joy, He'll say that Epaphroditus' return to them would bring them joy. He'll instruct them to rejoice, but not once does he sit back and say, hey, this is a church filled with joy. And you know why they lacked joy? They lacked joy because they hadn't addressed their joy buster. They had not addressed the division that existed within inside the congregation, and they had to deal with that before they could experience and possess joy as a congregation. The other thing that's interesting to me about this letter is that Paul didn't give up on this congregation. He didn't say they had any joy, but he also didn't say, I'm done with you, I'm quitting you, I'm not working with you anymore. One preacher summarized Paul's attitude toward imperfect churches quite well. He said, instead of turning his back on the brethren in Philippi, Paul turned his heart toward them. He sought to help them improve. He sought to help correct their problems. He sought to help them grow. He prayed for them. He encouraged them. He challenged them. But most of all, he loved them in spite of their problems. Listen to how Paul felt about this congregation. We're going to read what we read in our scripture reading again. But listen to it and listen for the affection that Paul has for this church. It's Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. 
always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. He talks about his feelings, his yearnings for this congregation. He talks about his affection for this congregation. And this is a congregation with problems. You know, in the U.S., we suffer from a consumer mentality. We are so used to going to the store, and if we don't like their product or their prices or their service, then we'll just go to the store down the street. That's how we approach the grocery store. That's how we approach restaurants. And sometimes, that's how we approach church. Far too often, we approach the church with the mentality that it exists to serve our needs. And if we get a little upset, or if we get a little bit offended, or if something doesn't go the way we want it to, then we take our talents and our contributions, and we go to the franchise down the street. Paul would never think of doing that. Paul would never stomp out of an assembly and say, I'm so mad at this congregation, I'm going to go to the other one. That's how people today often handle their frustrations with the church. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a point at which you can't stay at a congregation. If the truth of God's Word is not being taught or practiced, you shouldn't stay at a congregation. If ungodly, unethical, unrighteous behavior is being tolerated by that congregation. You cannot stay at that congregation. But if the problems have to do with differences of opinion, or if the problems have to do with personal preferences, or if the problems have to do with conflicts of personality and style, then maybe it's a time for you to practice loving rather than leaving. And I think that's something we can learn from Paul as he deals with the church in Philippi, as he dealt with the church in Corinth, as he dealt with many churches that had problems. What if we practiced loving instead of leaving? And I think Paul gives us a strategy for that. See, I want us to focus in for the rest of our time on verses uh, 3 through 6, I believe it is, in particular, because I think in those verses we can see a three-part strategy for how we can love the church and find joy in the church in spite of its problems. And the first thing we're going to have to do is we're going to have to, have to remember our partnership in the gospel. Look at what Paul said in verses 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership 
in the gospel from the first day until now. As Paul writes to this problem-filled, joy-lacking congregation, he expresses his gratitude for them and indicates that he can joyfully pray for them because of their spiritual partnership. In other words, Paul is focusing on their commonality. He's focusing on what unites them rather than what divides them. And I want you to think just for a moment. What unites us? Ben did a great lesson on this last Wednesday. What unites us? Well, you know one thing that unites us? We're all sinners. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, all have sinned. That's a really inclusive word, isn't it? There's no getting around that word. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we're not just united by our failure. We're also united by our Savior. Because we all needed Christ. And that's why the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's that inclusive word again. Jesus died for you. He died for me. He died for all of us. And so all of us have access to a Savior. That unites us. And we are united in particular because those of us who have put on Christ are all children of God. I'm reminded of Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 and 28. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All! There's that word again. You see, there are things that unite us. And if we will focus on the things that unite us, we can experience joy in the church despite problems in the church. But it starts with recognizing what unites us. But when Paul spoke about a partnership here, I don't think he's just talking about those things that unite us. That word partnership is actually the Greek word koinonia, which you may have heard before in other lessons, that is a word that's typically translated as fellowship. In other words, what Paul's talking about when he says a partnership in the gospel is he's talking about a teamwork mentality to a large degree. But I want you to think for a moment. What does partnership in the gospel really entail? Being a partner in the gospel doesn't just mean you believe the same things and share the same convictions. It also means that you possess a mutual respect for one another, a deep and abiding love for one another, and a desire to do what's right for one another. If you get over to Philippians chapter 2 and you look at verse 3 through 4, which we'll be spending time with later in this series at more length, but, but in Philippians chapter 2, right after Paul calls on them in verse 2 to have the same mind, to have the same love, to be in full accord, he then says this, verse 3 and 4 of Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul's instruction in chapter 2 are a call for a partnership that tr transcends like-mindedness when it comes to doctrine. It's a partnership that includes mutual respect for one another, the counting others 
more important than yourselves, and a mutual concern for others, looking to the interest of others. Partnership means a mutual respect and a mutual concern for one another. And honestly, that combination of mutual respect and mutual concern has never been more important than it is right now. The racial divide in our country has resurfaced in a way that it cannot be ignored, should not be ignored. And the church needs to be the place that sets the standard of how race shouldn't dictate how people are treated. There's more I need to say on that subject, but I'm saving that for a later date. Because one thing I've realized, right now is the time for me to be quick to listen and slow to speak. But speaking will come after I've listened. But here's my main point. If we will focus on what unites us instead of what divides us, and if we will seriously practice partnership, not just shared beliefs, but shared respect and shared concern for one another, then we certainly can find joy in the church. A joy that you can't find in the world. And so we must remember our partnership in the gospel, but we must also remember to pray for one another. You'll notice, if you pay attention to Philippians chapter 1, that in the scripture reading today, twice Paul referenced his prayer for this congregation. He said in verse 4, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. In verse 9 he said, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment i got a couple of observations about Paul's use of prayer in this passage. First, I find it beautiful that he's praying for the entire congregation. Praying for all of you. See, there's a division in the congregation. There's Yodia's side, there's Syntyche's side. They've got supporters on both their sides. And Paul doesn't chime in and say, hey, I'm praying for Yodia's side. He doesn't chime in and say, I'm praying for Syntyche's side. No. He says, I'm praying for all of you. He prayed for people on both sides of the disagreement. Let me ask you something. When you disagree with your brother or, and sister, or sister in Christ, when you come up against a conflict with your brother or sister in Christ, do you pray for him or her? Let me ask you maybe a more difficult question. When you disagree with somebody, when you encounter a conflict with somebody, do you pray for yourself? I think we need to see in Paul's prayer for everyone involved in this division, the need for us to pray inclusively, not exclusively. And what I mean by that is we don't need to just pray for the people we disagree with to be proven wrong and for us to be proven right. We need to pray for ourselves that we'll conduct ourselves the way we should in such a conflict. We need to pray that if we are wrong, that it will be revealed to us and that we will respond appropriately. And we need to pray that our disagreement or conflict will be handled in a godly way. Above all else, we need to pray that God's will is done no matter what. You see, praying isn't just about praying for somebody else. It's about praying for yourself 
for the purpose of evaluation and recognizing whether or not you're contributing to the error, whether or not you're wrong in some fashion, and then seeking to correct it. The other thing I think about prayer as I read Paul's words here, I notice he specifically prays for something in verse 9. He said that he was praying for their love to abound. Isn't that what they needed? A church that is divided in some fashion, isn't that what they need for their love to abound? It's very interesting because the division centered around these two women was a situation that needed greater love. And Paul's going to say that in verse, chapter 2, verse 2. Paul's going to call in that congregation, and those women included, to have the same love. Paul's going to mention part of their solution later. But before he ever tells them what they needed, he talks to God about what they needed. And he tells them that he's talking to God about what they needed. He's in effect saying, I've been talking to God about you, and I've been doing it constantly. And I've been asking God to fill you with a lot more love. And I believe the reason he did this is because he believed in the power of prayer. You see, prayer changes things. You know, the purpose of prayer is not to inform God. Sometimes we think that's the purpose of prayer unintentionally. But God already knows everything. He knows what you need before you, he, you ask Him. So He doesn't need to be informed. And sometimes we think that prayer is about convincing God. I need to tell God just how bad this is so that I can convince Him to do something. We serve a God who's going to accomplish His will one way or another. So how much convincing does He need? See, prayer is not about informing God or convincing God. Prayer is about consulting God. That's what makes it powerful. Because in our consultation with God, prayer has the power to affect change. It, it can lead to either changing the circumstances or maybe more importantly, it can lead to changing you. Because in your prayer of consultation with God, what just might happen is that you come to recognize and accept His will for your life in that situation. See, I want you to think about conflict and problems that might arise in the church and think about how you pray for them. Prayer has the power to change that. Yeah, that almost happened. You may not listen to me because you're frustrated with me in the midst of a conflict. You may not like what I have to say. But you cannot stop me from praying for you. And vice versa. I might be able to affect change through prayer that I can't affect through conversation. On the other side of that, I might be too stubborn. Sarah's nodding her head probably. I might be too stubborn to listen to you. I might be too 
uh, caught up in my own life to acknowledge how you see things and your perspective. But if I will pray like Paul prays, if I will pray like Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know what will happen? God will expose me through my prayer. And he will, call, he will help me to align my will with his. Prayer has the power to change. And if we will honestly and earnestly pray for one another, then we can find joy in the church. And so let's get on our knees for one another. May our first response to any disagreement, to any conflict, to any issue, be that we go to God on behalf of one another and ourselves. Because prayer changes things. If we want to find joy in the church, there's one more thing we've got to remember. We must remember that every Christian is unfinished. Look at verse 6 of Philippians chapter 1. Paul said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He acknowledged that God began a good work in his brothers and sisters, but then he also acknowledged that God will bring that good work to completion. He's, in effect, acknowledging that they're a work in progress, that God wasn't done with them yet, that they are unfinished. I think it's vitally important for us to realize that while we exist in these tents, that while we exist in these mortal bodies, we are incomplete. We're mortal. We're flawed. And if we realize that as a Christian, we are works in progress, it might help us to carry a little bit more humility into the issue. When conflicts arise, we need to remember that the people we are dealing with are unfinished projects of God. And we need to remember that about ourselves, too. In Judges chapter 6 and verse 12, when God addressed Gideon for the first time, he called Gideon a mighty warrior. If you read Judges chapter 6, if you read Judges chapter 6, you'll see that Gideon was no mighty warrior at that point. Judges chapter 6 introduces him as a coward, as a pessimist, as a, a, a doubter, with a very poor self-image. So how in the world did God declare Gideon to be a mighty warrior at that point? I think it's because God wasn't looking at Gideon's present standing. I think God was looking at his potential of what he would become. Because God can see the finished project that you and I can't see. And God wants us to look at one another with his eyes. I think that's why Barnabas was such an extraordinary figure in the first century church. Barnabas's real name was Joseph. Barnabas was a nickname. And in Acts chapter uh, 4, verse 36, we find out that that name means son of encouragement. So Barnabas was known as an encourager, but, but what made him such an encourager? I think his greatest skill of encouragement was seeing the best in other people. He saw the sincere faith of Paul before anybody else did. When everybody else didn't want anything to do with Paul, Barnabas is going and getting Paul and bringing him to the church. He saw in, in Mark 
usefulness that Paul refused to see, that Paul couldn't see after that first missionary journey. And he stuck with Mark and took Mark on other missionary trips. And then at the end of Paul's life, he instructs Timothy or Titus, I can't remember which one, I think it's Timothy, to go get Mark, because Mark is useful to me in my ministry. History kept proving that what Stephen saw in other people was real. Because Stephen wasn't just looking at their present standing. He was looking at their potential. He was seeing people the way God sees people. And so he modeled for us that vision, that ability to see the best in others. Paul knew this church had some problems, but Paul also knew that God wasn't done with them yet. He knew that they were a work in progress and that God would bring them to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If we would look at each other in times of conflict with that same mindset, then we would find joy in the church even during the most difficult moments. Remember our partnership. Remember to pray. And remember that we're unfinished while in this body. See, joy in the church is ultimately accomplished when I look at you and you look at me and we both realize what really matters. The one thing that really matters is that we both belong to Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, a 20-page handwritten love letter on hotel stationery from 1989 sold at auction for over $25,000. That's a hefty price to pay for a document not about yourself. Why would anybody think that that letter was worth a $25,000 price tag? It's all because of who it belonged to. Because that letter was penned by Michael Jordan. And of course, his stock has risen over this pandemic with his 10-part docuseries on ESPN. I share that little nugget of information with you to remind you that who you belong to matters most. If I can remember that, then I will always have joy in the church. If I will focus on who you belong to and who I belong to, then my joy in the church will always be complete. We need to become a people who never let the mistakes that occur within the confines of the church, who never let the problems that arise in the, in, in the arena of the church life to be something that depletes us of joy. We need to be people who handle things differently so that the joy is always present in the church. Because the church is here to represent to a lost world the kingdom of God. Today, maybe you don't belong to Christ. Today, maybe you never made the decision to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, we afford that opportunity now. We rejoice that, that Kayla made that decision last week. And if you need to make that decision today, the opportunity is available. We would love to assist you with that. If today you look at your life and you look at your participation in the church 
and you realize that something in, in, in the way you've looked at church and the way you've dealt with problems in the church has not been according to God's will, and you want to correct that, you want to repent of your mistakes, or you, or you want to ask for prayers to handle things better and to be a contributor to joy instead of a retractor of it. And now's an opportunity to make that correction too. Let's leave here today knowing that the way we are carrying ourselves as members of the body of Christ demonstrates the joy that is to be found in Christ and works to change the world. If you have any need to respond to today's invitation, won't you come while together we stand and sing?